Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Today, we're going to keep moving through Mark a few verses at a time as we look at what Mark says about Resurrection Day appearances. And we're going to look at the other parallel passages, spend a lot of time seeing what they add to the story. Now, before I get started on this project, I've got to mention something about the textual problem of the last verses of Mark, chapter 16. That's verses 9 through the end of the chapter. There's a big controversy over whether Mark 16, 9 through 20 is spurious or not. Many late manuscripts have it. Many early manuscripts don't have it. Now, here's some arguments in favor of including it. Why would Mark end his book this way? They, the women, were afraid. That's what happens in verse 8. The women were afraid. That's not a very triumphal end of a gospel. Possible answer to that is, well, he didn't end his gospel, his gospel here. The original ending is lost. That's speculation. Now, whether it's included or not, it's hard to argue with what's contained in it. Nobody's complained about its contents for centuries. A lot of cessationists like to complain about it because it has something in there about speaking in tongues, if I remember correctly. And they get all, oh, see there, it's not in the original manuscripts. Well, we're not going to let that tail wag the dog. I'm just going to assume it's in there. Most of the modern translations put it in there and flag it and say there's, it's a, of questionable textual authority. There's problems with the textual manuscript authority. I'm going to assume it's valid for the purposes of this discussion. Now, they are, there are enough resurrection appearances where I probably can't do it all in one audio, so... Well, I'm going to start out with Mary Magdalene and the other women who rep go report to the apostles. And Peter and John peel off from the apostles. They go visit the empty tomb. There were five resurrection appearances on this Resurrection Sunday. One was to Mary Magdalene. That's recorded in John and Mark. And the other appearance of the, of the risen Jesus to the other women besides Mary Magdalene was in Matthew. And that's what we're going to cover today. There were other appearances on Resurrection Sunday. We'll cover the next audio, Jesus appeared to the two disciples going to Emmaus, and he appeared to Simon Peter, and then he appeared to ten apostles as well as some other people. We'll take that up later. So let's start with John 20, verse, verses 2 through 10. Now here John is speaking of Mary Magdalene. In verse 2, John says this. So in chapter 20, John says this. So she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, that would be John, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So now Mary Magdalene is disputed what she actually saw before she ran to tell the apostles. In my opinion, the way I harmonize it is, she showed up with the other women. They saw the stone roll back. They didn't see the angel who had rolled the stone back. None of them did. But So Mary Magdalene, as soon as she saw that, she assumes that somebody's stolen the body, so she heads out to tell Simon Peter and the other disciples. Why did she do that? Because she wanted to tell them that somebody had stolen the body. As we'll see later, that's what she did tell them. However, the other women went to the tomb. Instead of going to the apostles, they went toward the empty tomb, and they saw two angels standing there, and they said, Jesus is resurrected. So Mary Magdalene and the other women are going to tell different stories when they get to the apostles because of their what they, what they saw was different. Now notice that Mary Magdalene ran to Simon Peter. Simon Peter is mentioned. He's singled out. As the NIV Study Bible says, despite his denials, Peter was still considered the leading figure of the apostles. Now, it sounds like she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. It sounds like she met Peter and John alone. But actually, as we read in Luke 24:10, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, mother of the Mary of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. So I assume that what happened was is that Mary Magdalene left separately, shows up at the apostles, and, and the other women at, during the course of the conversation, they show up at the same time, and they're all trying to tell what they saw, none of which the apostles believed, of course. Now, when she tells the apostles that we don't know where they have put him, put him, that tells us clearly that she thought that somebody had taken the body and put him somewhere else. She had no thought of the resurrection. She might have thought a friend or an enemy may have moved the body, as John Gill points out. Now, of course, there's a problem because the angels have said that he was resurrected. The way you solve that problem is to say Mary Magdalene peeled off before the other women saw the angels. That's one way to reconcile it. Another way is, I think it's Gleason Archer that says this, is that she was so distraught that she thought the angels were a figment of her imagination. I don't think so. I don't see how you see two angels and say, oh, I just made that up. I don't believe that. I think she left early. 
John Gill says the fact that Mary Magdalene believed that the body had been taken shows that she must have looked into the empty tomb. I am not so sure of that. It seems to me that if she saw that heavy tombstone moved away from the tomb that she would make a logical inference and say, whoop, somebody's taken the body. We go to John 20, verses 3 through 5. At that, Peter and the other disciple, that's John, went out heading for the tomb. Now we read in another passage that the disciples thought that this was all nonsense that the women were telling them, but it wasn't enough nonsense to where Peter and John didn't want to go check it out because they said, well, maybe she did see something. Maybe what's going on? Maybe, maybe somebody did rob the tomb, and that would be terrible. But at any rate, they went out to see what was going on. The two were running together, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Some people say because Peter was older. John Gill says that. I don't know how he knows that Peter is older than John, but let's assume it's true. Peter, the old man Peter, waddles up to the tomb, and John sprints past him and gets there first. Verse 5, stooping down, he, John, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Now you notice they were running. They weren't walking. They were running. They were excited. For whatever reason, but they didn't know what they were going to see, apparently. They knew that Mary Magdalene had seen something, and they were running. I don't believe that they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead yet. Now, why did John, who got to the tomb first, why did he, he looked into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in? I don't think there's any big deal about this. That's just what he did. He just went in there. He stopped to think a little bit. Then Peter came and went in behind him. And then John followed back into Peter. I just think that's what he did. Some people, like Adam Clark, want to make a big deal of this and said, oh, he didn't go in because he was fully aware the body was not there. Well, does that mean that when Peter went in later that Peter needed more proof than John? And after Peter went in, if John didn't need any more proof that the body was not there, why did he decide to go on in later? In verse 8, we see he went in. And then he believed. He believed something when he went in and saw. I don't know. Don't think it's important. The point, the point is, is they went in and they saw the empty tomb and they saw the linen cloths. Now, those linen cloths helped prove the resurrection because it is most unlikely that grave robbers would unwrap a corpse before removing it. It would take a long, long time. All those linen wraps that go around and around and around and around the body. There's no point in that. Why would you want to rob a corpse? Why don't you just take the body with the linen on it and unwrap it later when you're safe? We go to verse 6 and verse 7 in John 20. Then following him, that's John, following John, Simon Peter came also. He was late getting there because he was outrun. He entered the tomb. He went past John, entered the tomb, and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by himself, by itself. Well, now... The fact that they were lying there, I've already mentioned, shows that it's unlikely somebody stole the body. But something else shows that somebody, that a grave robber would not have stolen the body. Stolen the body if they had taken the time to unwrap the linen cloths, which they probably would not have. But if they had, they wouldn't have just folded them up neatly, put the head cloth in one place and the body wrap in another place. The grave clothes would have been in disarray, as the NIV Study Bible, John Gill and Adam Clark all point out. It would have taken a long time and a lot of trouble to unwrap the body and fold the clothes. Who did that? Who, who laid the linen cloths out so neatly? It's probably the two angels did that for the Lord. Ministering spirits ministered to the Lord. John 28, verses, nine, verses 8 and 9. The other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb. He decided to follow Peter on in there. Then entered the tomb, saw, and believed. For they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now... There are some options as to what John actually believed. It sounded to me like he believed that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That is what the NIV Study Bible and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown believe. Adam Clark, however, says that they believe that the body had been taken away and that Mary Magdalene's testimony was true. That's a possibility. I don't think it's the, that's it, though. I think the NIV Study Bible is correct. They believe now that Jesus had resurrected. Now, the fact that they believed at, at this point shows that they didn't make up the resurrection because of their preconceived understanding of prophecy, as the NIV Study Bible points out. I mean, there's lots of uh, Scripture, not only Old Testament prophecy, but the words of Jesus. Lots of Scripture and the words of Jesus could be interpreted as, being, as saying that Jesus would be resurrected. 
For example, Psalm 16, verses 9 through 10 says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my spirit rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Well, you could say, say that. See there, there's a, the disciples could have said, we're going we're gonna to fake this resurrection so that we can match this prophecy, according to skeptics. Then, of course, you've got Isaac being resurrected from that Mount Moriah in Genesis 22 when Abraham took him up there to be sacrificed and the angel of the Lord said, nope, 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 don't do it. Also, Jonah was resurrected out of the fish's belly. Jesus said in Matthew 12:44, as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, which implies, of course, that after three days and three nights, he's going to come out. And not to mention this, I've got about eight, I forgot how many verses, lots of verses, I don't have them here in front of me, but in previous audios, I, lit, I, I read out all the verses where Jesus had announced that he was going to be resurrected, and he would be crucified in Jerusalem, and after three days be resurrected. He'd already told them that. Now, they didn't believe it, but he had told them. Now, if the apostles had heard Jesus' words, and they were familiar with the scriptures, they could say, ah, let's fake this re resurrection so that we can match the prophecy. But they didn't do that. Their psychology was totally different. They just didn't believe. They didn't believe. It, it's ironic. It's helpful, actually, that the early disciples could not believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead because it shows that it took a lot of evidence to convince them that he was resurrected from the dead because this was such an earth-shaking event. And when they were finally convinced, they went away from being a bunch of frightened chickens cowering in their houses in Jerusalem to going out and risking their lives proclaiming the gospel and starting the church that today has over a billion people in it. There's nothing to explain that except they did not believe in the resurrection until they were prevented, presented with evidence. And if these skeptics and people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus would take the time, which they, because of their hard heart, most of them won't do, but if they would take the time and practice their own principles of, I'll take the evidence wherever it leads me, if they will do that, they will say, there's nothing to explain. There's no way to explain this except that Jesus actually did. He rose again from the dead. Well, at any rate, I'm going to assume that at this point, Peter and John believe in the resurrection. Now, in verse 9 here in John 20, John says this, For they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. It had been prophesied in the past in Psalms, for example, and Jesus had said the same thing once God says something, it's going to happen. Oh, that it brings up all kinds of philosophical questions about the predestination of God and the predestining of the future and how does that leave us free in the future. I'm not going to get into all that. I believe, I'm a compatibilist. I believe it's all compatible. But at any rate, right here it says, must. He must rise from the dead because the scripture said he was going to rise from the dead. So he, he was going to rise from the dead. Now notice when John says that they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That is an admission against John and Peter's integrity. They are saying that that admission makes them look bad. You mean you were spent all this time with Jesus and you didn't know that he was going to rise again from the dead? He told you over and over again. It, it is a confession of their lack of faith in Jesus. It makes them look bad. Well, what does that also do? It also makes it look like the accounts is true. It helps confirm the veracity of John's account because he admitted against his own interest, he admitted against his own interest that something was true. That's in, in the law of evidence, if I recall, a mission against interest is something that helps prove somebody's testimony is true. Verse 10, then the disciples went home again. All right, so the disciples are back to where they're staying in Jerusalem. We now turn to Luke 24, 9 through 12. Luke 24, 9 through 12 reads as follows. Returning from the tomb, and let me say here that this is going to be a parallel passage. We're not advancing the clock any. We're rehashing what has just happened from a different, from Luke's perspective. Returning from the tomb, and that's referring not to Mary Magdalene, but to the other women besides Mary Magdalene, and we're going to talk about who they were in just a minute. These other women returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, nonsense to the apostles, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Now, we've already seen that in John, John records Peter and himself, John ran into the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloth, so he went home amazed at what happened. All right, first of all, we note that Luke refers to the apostles as the eleven. Why did he do that? Because Judas had already bit the dirt. He had hanged himself. And so 
Luke calls the rest of the apostles, the 11 in the English translation, the Holman Christian Study Bible capitalizes it, capitalizes it as the 11. Luke often referred to the apostles as, as the 11. Acts 1.26, then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Acts 2.14, but Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, men of Judah, etc., etc. John, however, called the apostles the 12 after Judas was dead, John 20, 24. But one of the 12, Thomas, was not with them when Jesus came. So you see that the number is kind of a, a, an aggregate number that refers to the whole body of the apostles. If you take that literally, obviously it's not 12. It was a con there's a contradiction. One body has 11 apostles, and the other one apostle reports a body of 11 apostles, and the other apostle, the other writer, the other gospel writer, reports a body of 12 apostles, and if you want to be logic-chopping about it, that creates a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It's just the name that the apostles were called by. Now it says in verse 9, they reported, that's the women, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Well, who were the rest? Well, other disciples besides the apostles were gathered together. They were mostly from Galilee, according to, to the NIV study Bible. John Gill speculates it's the 70 that were sent out on the mission of the 70. Perhaps also the 120 who were there in the upper room. And notice that if 120 can be in the upper room of one of those Jewish houses, they could be there in whatever house that they were holed up in, hiding. Now, all the women are mentioned here, including Mary Magdalene. I'm going to assume that Mary Magdalene arrived separately from the other women, and they were, but they arrived at the house so that they were there at the same time. Let's talk a little bit about who Mary Magdalene was. Her hometown was Magdala, which is Luke 8:22 tells us that, and Magdala is on the western, central western coast of the Sea of Galilee. She should not be confused with the sinful woman of Luke 7 or Mary of Bethany in John 11.1. 1, so that's why you always put Magdalene at the end, Mary of Magdala. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. She's listed first in most, but not all, the list of the women. So she was fairly prominent. She was the first to see the risen Christ. And we're going to talk about that later in a very dramatic scene. It's fitting that the one who was redeemed from such sin, she had seven demons cast out of her, if you recall, Mark 16.9. Seven demons? That's serious business. I don't know what she was into. Maybe she was doing a astrology or a little cult. But it's fitting that the biggest sinner should see Jesus resurrected from the dead first. Note that the honor of seeing Jesus first resurrected from the dead was not to Holy Mother Mary. Excuse me, uh, the Virgin Mary. It seems like if if Jesus were Catholic, he'd let his mother see him first since she's born sinless and so forth. Now, Mary Magdalene was accused of being a prostitute because there were lots of prostitutes in Magdala. I don't know how that happened in history. There's no proof that she was ever a prostitute, but she was an alleged prostitute. And it's interesting, interesting that she got priority over one who was famous for her virginity. Prostitute first, virgin, not at all. The next woman that's mentioned is Joanna. She is named only by Luke at these, in these resurrection passages. She's the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. This is in Luke 8, 3. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod, Steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. These lists of women, sometimes it's a list showing who supported Jesus and the disciples as they ministered. There's another list showing who watched the crucifixion. And here's another list of those who were involved in the Resurrection Day events. So that's who she is. Now we've got Mary, the mother of James, is there. That's why I call her the other Mary. In fact, Matthew calls her the other Mary, quote, unquote, other Mary. She was the mother of James and Joseph in one of those lists. Mother in Mark 15:40, it said that she's Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. And in one of the lists, it says she's the wife of Cleophas, who is also known as Alphaeus. And that's so complicated, we're just going to remember her as the other Mary. Now, by the way, I mentioned the Virgin Mary. Where is she now? Well, she had been taken home by John after the crucifixion, John 19:27. Then he, Jesus, said to the disciple, John, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, John, took her into his home. So Mary's at home with John now. By the way, there was another woman that's not mentioned here. That would be Salome, the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. Salome, the wife of Zebedee. And again, this is we say this with probability, but not with due certainty, because the Hebrews had an unpleasant habit of only giving people one name, the first name, and it sometimes creates a lot of confusion, so people like to debate this. But that's the best I can see it right there. So we'll just call it the Mary Magdalene on one hand and the other women, the other group of women. And by the way, in Luke 24:10 here, it does mention other women. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women. We know one of the other women 
was was Salome, who Mark mentions, but it says other women, not other women. So there's got to be at least one other woman besides Salome who is unnamed and doesn't get any credit for being here. But anyway, it doesn't matter. They're a group of women. Now notice we read in verse 11 that the apostles did not believe these women. Now this is despite the many, many times Jesus had told them he would rise. I've mentioned I, I could go through and list scripture after scripture after scripture where Jesus said, I'm going down to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again. Now, Peter and John may not have believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. They might not have believed the women. It says they didn't believe the women. But they went to the tomb anyway. Perhaps they were hoping against hope. Perhaps they were angry that somebody had stole the body. It's hard to say. But we do know that when they looked inside that tomb and saw those linen cloths, hey, nobody stole the body. We, we don't know it, but we probably surmise it. We surmise it with a great deal of probability. At that point, they probably believed that Jesus was risen again from the dead. Peter went in in verse 12, looked in the tomb, and was, was, was amazed. John Gill says he still doesn't believe, but he couldn't account for the removal of the body, but therefore he was amazed. I don't know. The passage we just read in John said he believed, and I believe he believed at that point. It might be debatable, but I believe that that's so. Actually, I just said the verse in John, I think it's chapter 20, verse 8, said that both of them believed. It actually just says that John believed. It doesn't say anything about Peter, so I guess that's still up in the air. Now we're going to talk about two resurrection appearances in this audio. The appearance of Jesus to Mary Magdalene, which is recorded in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark, and the appearance of Jesus to the other women, which is recorded in Matthew. Now the other three, I'm going to list them here, we'll take up in a later audio. He appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Simon Peter, and he appeared to ten apostles and others beside the ten apostles. We'll take that up later. Now we turn to John 20, starting with verse 11, and we read verses 11 and 12. But Mary, that's Mary Magdalene, stood outside facing the tomb. Now how had she gotten there, remember? She had gone to the apostles, said that the tomb was empty, somebody had stolen the body. Peter and John take off running, and Mary follows. She's a woman, probably in a long dress. She can't run as fast, so she gets to the tomb after Peter. Peter and John have already left and gone back home. So she's by herself now. She stood outside facing the tomb, and she's crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus' body had been lying. Now, when it says she's been crying, as the NIV Study Bible points out, the Greek word for crying means wailing, sobbing hysterically. She was beside herself with grief. Grief. Jesus was dead. Somebody had taken his body. She could not show it the proper respect with all those spices she had bought and so forth. Now, the NIV Study Bible speculates that perhaps Jesus appeared to her first because she needed him the most. She really, she really did love Jesus. It was very obvious. It stands out in the pages of Scripture. For whom much has been given, there's a lot of response. And Mary Magdalene had a lot given to her. She was delivered from seven demons, if you recall. Now, it said she went in and she saw two angels. Now, let's talk about the angels because skeptics love to say, see there, the Gospels contradict because Matthew and Mark only mention one angel and Luke and John mention two angels. Well, I'm going to reconcile it all off the top of my head right here. The first thing we can say to reconcile is actually quite easy. Mary Magdalene is by herself when she saw these two angels. Remember, she and the other women had approached the grave, and, there was, and they saw the stone roll back. They didn't see the angel who was sitting on the stone. That was probably the guards who saw that, because the, the gospel accounts that Matthew and Mark, Luke, that say that she approached, they, the women approached the tomb. It doesn't say that they saw the angel sitting on the tomb having rolled it back. It just says they saw the stone roll back. Now, if they'd have seen an angel, I would imagine that the gospel writers would have recorded that, but they didn't. So I assume, and I realize this is not a slam dunk, some people disagree with this, but I assume that the women did not see the angel sitting on the tomb. So the first angel that's mentioned is the one that rolled the tomb back, and that's not a problem, rolled the stone back, because, I, and that's not a problem because only one angel did that. But then the women got into the tomb. Now, Mary had already taken off by this time, so the other women were inside, and Matthew says they saw or Mark, I'm sorry, Mark says that there was one angel sitting to the right side of the tomb. And Luke says that when they went in, they suddenly saw two angels standing. So you got two standing angels in Luke and one sitting angel to the right in Mark. Well, that's easy to reconcile. Mark just focuses on the angel who spoke. He's just talking about the angel who spoke because the angel was telling them, look, he's risen. You need to tell the disciples, go to Galilee and so forth. He's just focusing on the, the, the spokesman angel, if you will. Luke happens to mention there were two there. And it is often 
said by apologetic writers, and rightly so, is when there is two, there has to be one. So if Luke says there's two, there has to be one there also. And so Mark didn't, con didn't contradict anything when he said there was one. Now, if he had said there was only one angel there, there would be a contradiction. But he didn't say that. He said there was an angel to the right side. So that that satisfies the the initial entry of the women in the tomb. Luke says there were two angels standing, and Mark says there's one angel sitting. And we've just said here, Mary Magdalene, at a different time, after she had already left and gone and told the apostles, she came back and she saw two angels. That's not a problem. And that's it. There's, there's, you know, there's just no problem about these angels unless you're a skeptic and want to deny. You want to nitpick and quibble over evidentiary accounts of the greatest event in human history that will save you from your sins and keep you from dying and going to hell and be separated from the loving God that made you forever and ever for eternity. If you want to focus on the quibbling details about number of angels or you want to get saved, well, you know, that's your business. All right. We go now to John 20, verses 13 through 15. They, that's, that's the angels, they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? He repeats the same question the angels asked. Who is it you are looking for? Well, of course, Jesus knew who she was looking for. He was just trying to be a little dramatic there. And it was, supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. So she, she still doesn't believe yet. Now, the first question is, is why did Mary not recognize Jesus? Lots of times people didn't recognize Jesus, and a lot of times it can be explained just by the distance. I mean, I don't know how far away Jesus was standing when Mary said that. It could be she was just so far away she didn't recognize him. She was also stricken with grief because she's crying. Her eyes were filled with tears. Plus, it's early Sunday morning. Light was probably not very bright yet. It's very reasonable to say that she did not know who Jesus was. The only case that I can see where the disciples didn't recognize Jesus were the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which we're going to take up in the next audio. In that case, it's surprising they didn't recognize Jesus. But the other cases, it's not. It's not surprising. For example, in Galilee, when Jesus went up after the resurrection and saw some of his disciples fishing, John 21, verse 4, when daybreak game came, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples did not know it was Jesus. That could be just because he was standing a long way away from them on the shore. But we'll take up the road to Emmaus uh, differently. Here's some options as to why he was not recognized in these instances. He might have looked different. His clothes might have been different after his resurrection. He might have intentionally prevented recognition for some reasons. We'll talk about that in the next audio. I mentioned already that her eyes were filled with tears, as John Gill says in, in the case of Mary Magdalene and also, think about this. It was inconceivable to her that Jesus was alive. She had seen him nailed up on a cross. I mean, you know, that's a hard thing to believe. I know, I know that Jesus taught that over and over again. He was going to be resurrected from the dead. But I'm telling you, death is a huge enemy of the human race. And to think that somebody actually beat it, that's hard, hard to fathom. Now, the gardener, she thought Jesus was a gardener. And that was reasonable supposition because the tomb was in a garden. She might have thought the gardener removed Jesus' body. Now, she might have thought it was the gardener. She might have also thought it was Jesus' disciples or Jesus' friends. I don't think so. That's Adam Clark's idea. I don't think so. I don't think she had any idea who moved it. I think she thought the gardener moved it. Now, notice in verse 13, they said to her, the angel's woman, why are you crying? She didn't express surprise that she just saw, she had just seen two angels. Now, perhaps they were not in dazzling clothes as they were at the beginning when, he, when they saw the other women at the initial entry into the tomb. It just said she saw two angels in white. So there were two men-looking creatures with white clothes on, and that doesn't necessarily mean they were dazzling white. She obviously didn't recognize them as angels. She just thought there were two men there for some reason. Some people have raised the question, <laughs> Jesus is standing there, and of course he's clothed, and some people ask the question, well, where did he get his clothes? Jameson Fawcett and Brown answers that. Where did the angels get theirs? I don't know. Apparently, God provided it somehow when they were raised from the dead. Don't know where he got his clothes. Now, notice that both the angels and Jesus called her woman. I don't know how you translate that in English to make it sound right. Maybe ma'am or miss. Miss would probably be pretty good. It's recognition that you're addressing a member of the opposite sex. A, a female member of the opposite sex. But woman sounds so harsh in English. I mean, like here in the South, we say ma'am, ma'am. Or, or if it's a you know, unmarried lady, we say miss, miss. 
So Mary Magdalene was unmarried, so I, I would say it, it came across sounding like this. The angel said, Miss, why are you crying? And then Jesus said, Miss, why are you crying? I think that's much closer than woman. But I don't know why the translators don't do that. John 20, verse 16. Jesus said, Mary. Now he uses her name instead of, instead of just asking him, why are you crying and who you're looking for? He says, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. That's what they call him. They call him rabbi. Rabboni is a strengthened form of rabbi. It means my teacher. More intimate than just rabbi, teacher. It's my teacher. And it's interesting that in ancient Judaism, there were few, if any, examples where the term was used to address anybody except God. But we can't use that to say that, G Mary, was addressing, that, G that Mary was addressing Jesus as God because it's translated as teacher. John translated as teacher. So Mary was just using the polite form of address that she had used with Jesus before, but it was an intimate form, an intensified form of teacher. My teacher, Rabboni, not just rabbi. She said to him in Hebrew, the NIV has Aramaic, because Aramaic is a dialect of Hebrew. We don't want to get hung up on that. Now, when he said Mary, he probably emphasized it, as Adam Clark says, and I believe so. Instead of just saying, Miss, woman, he said, Mary. In other words, look at me. Look at who I am. Mary. John 20, verse 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, I've got a good quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown here. Quote, Mysterious words on which much difference of opinion has obtained and not much that is satisfactorily said. <laughs> so... This is a little hard verse here. Usually people use it to say that Mary, that, that Jesus, when he says he hasn't ascended to the Father, what he meant was he descended into hell and preached to the spirits in heaven, all that holding tank theology, which I utterly reject. I don't believe it. That's what Jesus did. I believe he went straight to heaven when he died, but that's another theological controversy that does not really concern us here. I just point out to you that people have made a lot out of this verse. So now we need to know why she grabbed a hold of him probably kneeled down on her face and grabbed his shins, probably. Why? Because I have not yet ascended to my father. Here are some options as to what he meant. He could be saying this, look, the ascension is a long way off, 40 days, so there's plenty of time to see me. There's no need to cling to me. Cling to me. He's saying, Mary, 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 I'm not leaving you. I'm going to be around for 40 days. Take it easy. You don't need to hold on to me. You're going to see me for 40 days. Now, that's the NIV study Bible's answer to Adam Clark, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Here's another option. He's saying this, Look, Mary, when I ascend to the Father, there's no way for you to know me except by the Holy Spirit. So don't get used to being able to hold me physically on earth. Don't get used to my physical presence. I'm getting ready to vacate the premises. I'm getting ready to go leave the earth and go to heaven. And you're going to have to get to know me spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Not physically, so don't get used to holding on to me. That's possible. That's an NIV, another NIV study Bible option. Here's a third option. Mary, don't cling to me because you need to run to the disciples. I will ascend. I haven't ascended yet, but soon I will ascend to the Father. I need to see them before I ascend, so you need to go run to them and tell them that I am here and I'm resurrected. I think that, that's John Gill's solution. I think that's a little stretched in my humble opinion. I think the best answer is the first one. The ascension's a long way off. You're going to have 40 days to see me, so no need to cling to me now. In the emotion of the moment. Notice how Jesus says, tells Mary, go and tell my brothers. That's the apostles. Jesus calls the apostles his brothers. Some people say it's his physical brothers. The NIV study Bible denies that. The members of Jesus' family, his physical brothers, did not believe in him. John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. They became disciples long after this. They were, for example, praying for the Spirit to fall at Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. All these were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So apparently the brothers started believing sometime after the resurrection. So he's, what he's doing is calling his apostles and his disciples. The disciples were there too with the apostles. The general run-of-the-mill disciples as well as the special apostles were there. Hold up in Jerusalem, and Jesus calls them his brothers. We are Jesus' brothers. John 20, verse 18. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She did just as Jesus said. She went and, went and told. Now, of course, I believe that what Jesus is doing here on Resurrection Sunday, he's going around establishing his presence for witness, for testimony, for evidence. He's appeared now to Mary Magdalene. He says, go tell the apostles. He's going to appear to the other women shortly. He's going to appear to the men on the road to Emmaus. He's spending the day, Resurrection Sunday, while all good Christians in America are hunting Easter eggs, Astarte eggs, excuse me, He's going around on his first Resurrection Sunday establishing the truth of the gospel, the truth of his words that he was going to rise again from the dead to redeem man from his sins. So she went and she told the apostles. Now she had already told them the tomb was empty, if you recall, and Peter and John went running out to see the empty tomb. But now she's got better evidence. She's seen the risen Lord himself, not just the empty tomb. Now we turn to a parallel account of what we just read about Mary Magdalene, alone at the tomb with the two angels and Jesus, Mark 16, 9 through 11. Starting with verse 9, Early on the first day of the week after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. We've already talked about that first appearance when we looked at the fuller account in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. She went and reported to those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping. We learned from John that was because Jesus told her, Quit clinging to me, Mary, go tell the apostles. We notice another detail here. Those apostles were not just waiting. They were crying. They were mourning. They were weeping. They still did not believe. Verse 11, Yet when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. So they still didn't believe. So Mary Magdalene had reported an empty tomb. They didn't believe that. Now she's reporting actually seeing Jesus, and they didn't believe that. Now, there's probably an exception to the disciples who didn't believe, because I believe one of them did believe, and that was John. Because we read in John chapter 20, verse 8, Then entered in therefore, and the, the timing of this verse is when Mary had reported the empty tomb, and Peter and John ran to the grave site as fast as they could. Verse 8, Then entered in therefore the other disciple, that's John, also. In addition to Peter, John went into the tomb. Then entered and therefore the other disciple John also, which came first to the tomb, that's John, and he saw and believed. So John believed. The rest of them didn't. Now, you know, some people say that John believed that Mary Magdalene was right, that the body had been stolen, so he, he even he didn't believe in the resurrection. I don't think so. I think he believed that Jesus was risen from the dead, but his fellow apostles apparently not. They're still crying and moaning and weeping, and then they still didn't believe Mary when she showed up and told them that she had seen Jesus. Now we will turn to Matthew 28, and we'll take up the appearance of Jesus to the other women who were not with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was separate at this time. Starting in verse 9 in Matthew 28, we read this. Just then Jesus met them, the other women, and said, Good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Now, we don't know whether this happened before Jesus met Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene alone, or whether... It was after he met Mary Magdalene. It doesn't really matter. There's lots of different ways you can reconcile the different movements of the people here, and that's one of them. Now, the angel had already told them that Jesus had, resurrection. Now, Jesus had resurrected. Now, Jesus actually met them, and they saw the resurrected Jesus. So the evidence is building, getting stronger and stronger. Now, there are eyewitnesses, not secondhand, but firsthand eyewitnesses now. So their testimony to the disciples would be even stronger Adam Clark says this, Jesus does not reveal himself to incredulous and disobedient souls. He even tried the faith of the women through the angels. He, as Clark says, Jesus had seen the women obey the angels' command to go tell the disciples. In other words, are you going to obey me, women? Are you going to obey me? You see me, but are you going to do what I say? So while the disciples are wallowing in misery and unbelief, the unbelieving women were in the presence of Jesus and obeying his commands. That's a good sermon application for you. Now, there's something funny here. I, I think it's kind of ironic. Jesus met them and said, good morning, like it's any other day. No big deal. I just rose from the dead. You're crying and miserable, but here I am. Good morning. You can imagine how shocked those ladies were and how happy they were. Oh, sure, they came and took hold of his feet, bowed their faces down to the ground and worshipped him. They didn't worry about whether there was one angel or two angels at the tomb. They were probably, John Gill says they grabbed his feet probably to assure themselves he was not a ghost. That might be true. They had a big belief in ghosts back then and... That might have been what they were doing, or it could be they were just worshiping him. Matthew 28, verse 10. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Do not be afraid. Why does Jesus say, Don't be afraid? You would think that seeing Jesus would have the opposite effect, make them feel calm and not afraid. Well, John Gill says maybe they were afraid that 
they had been deceived, could be, or it could be that just seeing supernatural things in general excites a certain fear, kind of like a, a reverential fear, an awesome fear in people. Matthew 28, 8, we see this. So departing quickly, that's two verses ago that I just, well, I didn't read it. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples his news. So you see, along with their great joy, they had fear as uh, upon the encounter with the angels in the empty tomb previous to this they had fear along with the joy and so naturally you see something supernatural you're going to be a little bit afraid i get a little bit afraid a little bit when i think about heaven i think it's going to be a wonderful thing but it's something different and death is something i've never experienced before anytime you experience something for the first time you're going to feel that little tinge of fear okay so you notice again he says go and tell my brothers he calls his disciples and his apostles his brothers leave for galilee now this might have been reassuring to the women that Jesus called them brothers because they might be thinking that Jesus would be upset that all his disciples had abandoned him. But Jesus assures them, no, they're still my brothers. I don't hold it against them because they ran when I was crucified. This shows that Jesus had completely forgiven his faithless disciples. Jesus often, in another famous place, called his disciples his brothers. Remember when his mother and his blood brothers came up to him and thought he was out of his mind because there's so many people flocking around him in Capernaum, Matthew 12:49. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. He calls his disciples his, brother, his mother and brothers. So his disciples are his brothers, close. Now some people say, well, now wait a minute. Why is Jesus saying, telling the women to go tell the apostles to leave for Galilee? And they will see me there. Well, they saw Jesus before they went to Galilee. Well, there's no contradiction there. Just because they're supposed to go to Galilee, that doesn't mean they can see Jesus before they go to Galilee. And as a matter of fact, they did. They saw him that night, this Sunday night, and they saw him the next Sunday night. That night, they all saw him except for doubting Thomas, Thomas Didymus. And then the next Sunday night, eight days later, they all, all of them saw him. And then they head to Galilee. Matthew 28, verse 11. We now turn to... We turn to the story of how the guards report the empty tomb to the Jewish rulers. We read in Matthew 28, verse 11, as they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. As the women were on their way to the apostles to tell them that they had seen the risen Lord, some of the guards, not all, some of the guards that had been left there to stand watch over the tomb by the Jews, the Roman guards, who the Jews were given a, a contingent of Roman guards to watch the tomb to make sure the disciples didn't steal the body, probably the same soldiers that cruci crucified Jesus. Some of those guards went back into the Jerusalem and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Now Matthew's the only gospel writer that tells us of the posting of the guards, and he is the only gospel writer who tells us of the report back to the chief priest. Now, it's ironic that those who were posted to prevent claims of resurrection are now one of the first witnesses. They go back and say, he's not there. The tomb is empty. We saw some angels who rolled the stone back. Now, the Jews now had incontrovertible proof that Jesus had risen, and they still tried to cover it up, as we'll see in the next verses. The next verse. They're not going to admit it. After the women and angels had left the tomb, some people speculate, they probably went back and examined the empty tomb itself to see if the soldiers were telling them straight. They wanted to confirm that the body was actually gone. Probably. They just probably weren't going to take somebody's word for it. This would assume that Mary Magdalene's appearance at the tomb with Jesus, that, that had already taken place and, and the angels had, had left the tomb. Time had gone by and then the Pharisees went down there and the Jewish leaders and the scribes and the priests, they went down there to check it out to see whether the tomb was actually um, empty. Now, these soldiers reported everything that had happened. What did they report? Everything that we've been reading in the Gospels about the crucifixion, or the, about the resurrection events. They probably said, look, we checked for the body after the angels and women had left, probably. They said, they probably told the chief priest the woman had not stolen the body. That's where they probably said that because they could have easily stopped women stealing a body. So they probably said, no, the women didn't steal the body. We could have stopped that. Well, why did they go back to tell the chief priest what had happened? Because when the word got out that the tomb was empty, which it was shortly going to be, they would be accused of bribery by the Christians. They were bribed so that the body could be stolen. Or they could have just been accused of negligence. And, of course, a Roman soldier accused of negligence would stand trial of court-martial. Maybe they could be accused of falling asleep on the watch. In that case, they'd be executed. 
Falling asleep, in fact, is what most people would naturally assume, and that and that's bad business for the soldiers. They didn't want that to happen, so they went and reported the truth to the chief priest. One more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus against skeptics who claim that it didn't happen. Now I have a speculation. What I might have done if I was one of those, if I were one of those soldiers, if those soldiers that had been smart, and if they were able to roll that stone away, which I don't know, four soldiers might have been able to roll the stone away. I'm not sure. However, they couldn't have rolled it away with two angels standing there guarding the tomb. So this is highly speculative. But maybe if they had waited till the angels had left, they could have rolled that stone back in front of the tomb. Then no one would have known that Jesus' body wasn't inside. And the soldiers would have been in no trouble at all. And if people would go around saying, uh, listening to the women's testimony that the grave was empty, all the soldiers would have to say, no, it's not. Look there. It's got a stone in front of it. These women don't know what they're talking about. And so the Jews could therefore explain the empty grave that way. They could say, well, while uh, the soldiers left after they uh, after the, their watch was over and they left the tomb with the stone in front of it, they left and then the disciples came and rolled the stone away and got the body out. That They could have done that, but they didn't do it. And I think that they were rattled under un unusual circumstances and didn't think that far ahead. I wouldn't have thought that far ahead either, I don't think. But at any rate, they didn't do it, and so they gave testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, notice that some of the soldiers went back to the Pontius Pilate, and other soldiers stayed at the tomb. That was their orders. They were supposed to guard the tomb, so they stayed there guarding it, even though the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. We go to Matthew 28, verses 12 and 13. After the priest had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. Now, the priest and the elders, this is the Sanhedrin, the elders, of the, the ruling elders, those who are on the Sanhedrin, most, and many of them were priests, and many of them were Sadducees. Some of them could have been priests, and some were not on the Sanhedrin. They were just priests, and I'm sure it's the chief priest, the big shot priest, although it doesn't say so here. So they got to figure out how they how they going to cover up the resurrection. Big problem. Now there's a problem with the Jews' cover story. It would be hard for anyone to believe that a Roman soldier would confess to letting the body out of the tomb by sleeping. Sleeping on guard was punishable by death. There's another problem with their story. If the soldiers were asleep, how could they know the disciples stole the body? Another problem with their story. Is it likely that likely that all the soldiers of the guard would all fall asleep at once? Because there was four of them, remember? All four of them just, they're out all at once. Boom. Now, right at that time, the disciples came and stole the body. Yeah, right. Is it likely the Roman soldier would, even one Roman soldier would fall asleep, knowing that death was the punishment? Yeah, right. This was a bogus, stupid cover story that the Jews came up with, and it's laughable. It's risible. Didn't happen. Another problem, would it not be likely that the, Jew, that the Jews would tell the soldiers to be especially on the alert? You've got to really be careful. Don't let anybody come. After all the uproar that had happened in Jerusalem about Jesus being the Messiah, you've got to be really careful. These fanatic disciples are going to come in here and, and steal the body. So they would be specially warned to stay awake. Not only would they fear being killed by the Romans for falling asleep, but also the Jews tell them, hey, be careful. But despite all that, despite all that, the tomb was empty. The soldiers were not negligent. They weren't sleeping. They were doing their job, and the angels came, rolled the stone away, and Jesus walked out of that tomb. Now, notice these, these Jewish elders and priests are, are making a plan to cover up their murder. These people were so evil, they were still plotting against Jesus after there was incontrovertible proof that he had risen from the dead. <laughs> they make up this story, like I said, that the, that the soldiers were asleep, which is stupid. Another part of the, of the stupidity of their story is this. The disciples came during the night and stole the body. Really? First of all, there were only 11 disciples. They had all but one, that was John. All the others beside John had abandoned Jesus. No one in Jerusalem had seen them near the cross, except for John. They would have had to have outfoxed the majestic power of the Sanhedrin, and the power of the Roman army to get that body out. And besides, when they went to the tomb, how could they get? How could they roll that stone away and get the body out without waking up the sleeping soldiers? They would have been awful sleepy to not hear all that activity, and nobody could have seen them. Could the disciples have really pulled that off, of stealing the body without anybody seeing them, not only the Romans, but somebody else? That is absurd. Matthew 28, verse 14. The priest and the rulers 
the Jewish leaders say this, if this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. Well, see, the Jews had a problem with asking the, the Roman soldiers to confess that they'd been sleeping. That would be a confession against their interest and, in fact, against their life because if they confessed that they were sleeping, boom, they get executed for dereliction of duty. And the Jews knew that, so they said, look here, I know you're going to be in trouble with the Romans, yeah, but if Pontius Pilate hears about it, the governor, Pontius Pilate, if he hears about it, we will deal with him, and that probably means we will bribe him, and we'll keep you out of trouble. Now, the guards really had no choice but to accept the bribe. If they didn't accept the bribe, the word would have gotten out that they had let the body escape. There would be no cover story, in other words, and they would have been killed for negligence, probably. And if they didn't accept the bribe, Jesus would be proclaimed as Messiah, and then you'd have a political revolution on hands, and that's not going to, going to be too good for the Romans. And who are they going to blame? They're going to blame for the soldiers who let this, this messianic movement get started because they didn't guard the tomb enough. That's if they didn't take the bribe. They had no choice but to take the bribe because they needed some protection, and the Jewish leaders gave them some, from, some protection by promising to deal with, i.e. bribe, Pontius Pilate. We go to Matthew 28, verse 15, and we'll shut this audio down. So they took the money, that's the soldiers, and did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. They don't think about it too carefully. To that day, of course, means to the day that Matthew wrote the gospel, which is what, in the 60s, 70s, depending on who you listen to. Why did they take the bribe? Was it through financial greed? John Gill says, I disagree. I think it was from fear. They had no choice but to take that bribe, because they'd have been hung out to dry for letting, for letting the resurrection take place under their watch. When it says here, when Matthew says that the story of the sleeping soldiers had been spread among Jewish people to this day, Justin Martyr, who wrote about mid-2nd century, the famous church father in his dialogue with Trifo the Jew, he says that the Jews sent special messengers to every country to explain this embarrassing situation. They didn't just wait passively for people to claim a resurrection, then they would respond with all the soldiers were sleeping. They went around and affirmatively, affirmatively told people in far-off lands in the diaspora that those soldiers were sleeping. Jesus didn't really rise again from the dead, and they've been trying to deny it ever since. It's so sad. But as Paul says in Romans 11, they're going to come back flocking in to the kingdom, and I can't wait. So ladies and gentlemen, we finished with some of the appearances of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday and the associated events. Next audio, we'll talk about the appearance of Jesus to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus as well as to Simon Peter, as well as to the other ten apostles. We'll take up that next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.